Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. everyone. There are two things I wanted to mention quickly before today's episode. First, this is the sixth anniversary of HI 101. I released the first episode on June 1st of 2014. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's made it into a bigger thing than I could have anticipated, and especially all my guests for putting up with me this long. I couldn't have done it without any of you. I try not to ask anyone to do anything for this show very often, but since it's a special occasion, I'd really appreciate any ratings and reviews that get left on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, especially if they're good ones. Second, since I've been doing this show for so long, I decided it's finally time to try something just a tiny bit different. I've been wanting to talk about a topic for a few years now, fascism. I think it's a topic that isn't well understood for a word that gets used quite frequently. However, you'll notice that the title of this episode isn't fascism. That's because I don't want to do a two or three part episode that's 75% context and address the actual topic poorly. I've been considering how to approach this for some time now, and what I'll be doing instead is a series of episodes over the coming several months that should stand on their own as well as any other, but will help pave the way toward discussing fascism in a well-informed manner. It's not a serial or anything, you don't need to listen to this episode before next month's, but I'd highly recommend listening to everything in the series before tackling the final ones on fascism. Think of it as a sort of syllabus, if you will. Not every episode will be blindingly obvious as to how it fits. Evolution, for instance, might not make sense just yet, but I've selected all of them for good reason. Let's get back to part one. Evolution feels like a somewhat loaded term. It can evoke so many ideas. The study of biology, the intersection of fundamentalism and modernity, dinosaur bones, Darwin. But its history extends past Darwin and has risen and fallen in level of acceptance. So how long ago was evolution proposed, and what makes it such a battleground? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And uh, today we're going to be talking about evolution, which, you know, begins and ends with Darwin, right? Absolutely not. No, we're going so much farther back, man. It's going to be a really good time. I, had a, I actually really enjoyed uh, uh, researching this one. Um, I Again, it, it always, you know, you kind of start out talking about Darwin, you know, Voyage of the Beagle, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. There is so much more interesting stuff going on in the history of this that I had really very little idea about. You know, I, I, I thought it was sort of a, a 
matter of people thought everything was created exactly as it was and stayed exactly the way it was forever, right up until, you know, 1861 or 1859, sorry, when uh, Origin of the Species is, is uh, uh, published. And, and that's kind of the beginning of the story. No, 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 no. We had, we had uh, a much longer tradition of talking about the way uh, species change and develop over time. Do we want to start out by like talking about what evolution is exactly? <laughs> uh, I, I think that'd be a good place to start since, you know, it's still apparently a debated topic in many parts of the world. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to take a crack at it? I'm putting you on the spot uh, here, but. So my understanding of evolution, uh, and again, this is one of these things where you tell me that it's got a much longer history than just Charles Darwin. And, you know, this being one of my lesser explored sciences, I, uh, I'll i take your word for it. This is the first I've heard. <laughs> sure. Uh, but um, yeah, my understanding of natural selection or evolution is just that you have uh, organisms in an environment that they're not perfectly suited towards and uh, mutations happen and those mutations might be more advantageous for those organisms and so they live a better happier life and are more likely to then propagate the species in that direction going forward and over the course of millions of years you have organisms that are better suited for their environment or their habitat or their predators or whatever the case might be whatever they're you know selecting to improve upon yeah sure i mean i think that's a, a reasonable uh summary of of uh where we're at with with evolution and, and more or less have been since since darwin it's it's a matter of um different environmental pressures being put on different species and mutations coming from a variety of of sources either uh, complete randomness, natural selection, um, artificial selection, uh, creating changes in those organisms over generations. And, you know, that's that's kind of it in a way. It's it's not like I want to make it sound like it's a simple thing, but it's also one of those things I think can be overly complicated in the wrong directions by some mm -hmm. people. There are a lot of things that evolution doesn't explain. Uh, for example, the origin of life. Evolution has nothing to say on that whatsoever. It's got nothing to do with like how life begins. It only kind of picks up the story after a uh, universal common ancestor has been created and takes the ball from there, right? So uh, there's there's lots of myths about you know why evolution occurs. You know, uh, species don't uh, you know automatically become more complex. For example, that's not you know an innate thing about evolution. It's not about uh, complexity or or improvement necessarily. It really is a, a random process, right? It's a uh, it's a roll of the dice, and then like whichever outcomes uh, occur, whichever of those outcomes happens to get passed on to more progeny is what causes a change within a species, or causes one species to uh, diverge into two different species, right? But we can get a little bit more into that as we go. I, I just sort of wanted to make sure we were starting off like on the same foot, kind of thing, you know. I feel like there's probably a, a simple way to explain it to someone uh, and it's really easy to get into the weeds if you don't. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and especially today with modern, you know, study of genetics and epigenetics and, and all this crazy stuff that, that we've uh, discovered since. But, you know, essentially that's that's what we're talking about is environmental pressures and, and uh, random genetic mutations resulting in changes and divergences. So that's that's essentially it. Because it's such a simple idea, it's something that on a certain level we've been not only observing as human beings, but causing to happen in a certain way when you look at something as simple as like animal husbandry, right? Like just right. as simple as, you know, breeding the the 
cows that produce the most milk, right? The next generation produces a little bit more. That's a, that's a process that we've been doing since prehistory. We understand it very, very, very well. So it, it's not really that surprising that like the first theories that get thrown about surrounding evolution are like thousands of years old. The first one I have uh, recorded is from a Greek philosopher named Anaximander from the 6th century BCE, so over 2,600 years ago. This is actually the earliest Greek philosopher we have any writing from whatsoever. So it's not just like, oh, you know, this is this is the earliest writing we have on it. This is the earliest writing we have from Greeks, period, uh, wow. in the in the philosophy uh, department. And that's really where we're going to be hanging out for the first little while, by the way, because, uh, you know, the concept of science as it exists today is, is a relatively recent development. <laughs> this is the sort of person who's thinking about things like what is a species and how do how does life change and where does it come from? All, all of that stuff. Right. And by the way, every single one of the the thinkers that we're going to just sort of breeze past in this first section, let's put it this way. Plato and Aristotle don't even get their own like first level points in my notes. Like they're just kind of <laughs> lumped together and we're going to just blow right past them. Keep that in mind when we do every single other one of these thinkers, because they're all on that level or, or very close to it. Okay, interesting. Anaximander, like, he might have taught Pythagoras. Like, that's how big a deal he is. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, he wasn't just some nobody that they kind of dredged up. He has a really interesting idea about how the world works. There's this era of Greek philosophy where they're trying to come up with a, a cosmology, so, like, rules of, of, of how the universe works that's independent from mythology, right? Like, they're looking for explanations in the natural world. And Anaximander is one of the first ones to, uh, or, or that we have a record of, coming up with something like this. And he believed that the world began as all of the elements mixed together. And keep in mind, we're talking like classical elements, right? Mm -hmm. And that rotation, specifically the rotation of the earth, which is known about in this period, causes the elements to slowly separate from uh, their opposites over time. Okay. So, like a centrifuge? <laughs> yeah, a lot like a centrifuge. Like think about like taking like muddy water and like putting it in a bucket and like spinning it around, right? Like you get it to like sediment at the bottom of the bucket mm -hmm. like that's that's the kind of idea that he's thinking of on like a global scale and from this idea which you know is is obviously not the actual case but like has some logical consistencies with their understanding of the world right he, he comes to a couple of conclusions about um specifically the origin of human beings like he goes right for the throat that's the one that is going to cause problems later right that's the one that's going to have like or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the one that people are going to have issues with is the origin of, of human beings. Um, but how does this affect me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he reasoned that the first uh, human to ever live must have been born from another animal. And he came up with this for a couple of reasons. Number one, his conception of like the world as it was developing was like a very wet, very humid place, right? Because if you mix air and water, you get mostly water, right? Like you get water with some bubbles or maybe like a very humid climate likewise you you mix earth with water and it's you know kind of sedimenty water and the only creatures that can like really live in all four of those elements at the same time well there's there's fire in there too but the only creature that can live in all those elements at the same time is fish so he reasons that fish must have come first which is prescient not wrong <laughs> not not entirely wrong so he assumed that number one uh, humans couldn't have existed in that original environment Number two, he points out the fact that, look at babies, they can't survive anything. Like, <laughs> they're so bad yeah. at surviving, they're helpless. 
And so something must have taken care of the first humans until they were old enough, like minimum until they were weaned, right? Like it's this right. I- it's not just like a, an idea of like kids are helpless and they're going to fall off a cliff or whatever. It's this mm. idea that like they can't feed themselves. Right, of course. <laughs> and that's true with human beings. The, the development process is pretty long before someone's self-sufficient, real, realistically uh, speaking. So his proposal is that the first humans must have been uh, born from fish and that these fish carried them in their mouths for the first several years of their lives um, until kind of spitting them up onto the, onto the earth. Yep. Perfect. Love this theory. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's pretty out there, but again, we're talking 2,600 years ago and he takes it from there and basically expands it uh, to some extent, at least to other creatures saying that like, listen, some of them must have come from somewhere else. Like it's not possible for all of them to have existed in this like primordial state that I've, I've described. And so there must have been some sort of change over time. He also believes that that rotational oppositional divergence that we talked about at the beginning is like sort of an innate uh, force in the universe and that you get animals who are their opposites must have kind of diverged from some sort of like middle ground at some point. Okay. Um, he, he just thinks that that's the way that the world exists. It's this like complexifying force through repulsion of opposites, basically. So is the idea then that the earth formed and was covered in this miasma of earth, wind, fire uh, and water, and then like fish developed from that as it started to separate. And so does some sort of fire being. Yeah, I don't know about the fire beings. I I didn't notice that in there, but I did not get into it. (laughs) Most of his writings don't actually exist in uh, original form anymore. Uh, Very, very little of the original exists. Most of what we have to work off of are notes from people who read them like only 2100 years ago kind of thing. (laughs) So it's a lot of abstracts here. But also, I didn't I didn't have time to like read every single one of those. I don't know how he feels about fire beings, man. Sorry. (laughs) I think they're pretty cool. <laughs> I, I mean, agreed. But it's it, this guy I find interesting in that, like, he got so much stuff right coming from such a weird and wrong place. Well, <laughs> it, it's it's a lot of uh, it, it's interesting that he comes up with these ideas that um, it's a good place to start. Like, hey, humans didn't spring fully formed onto this earth, and sure. you know, we, we had to have started somewhere, and then to come to a conclusion that is like. Yeah, you're sort of right, but also I don't think humans were carried around in fish mouths. Yeah, generally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but still, like, really interesting guy. Let's yeah. let's move on to Plato and Aristotle. Actually, so we're talking fourth century BCE. This is a full like two hundred years later, right? The main effect that Plato and Aristotle, especially Plato, uh, have on sort of the conversation around evolution in particular is arguably one of their mo- uh, one of Plato's most famous dialogues involves this, which is the uh, the allegory of the cave, right? Right. What do you remember about the allegory of the cave? Oh, it's been a minute. Um, <laughs> not much, honestly. I, I'm going to say that basically you have such a dim view of what's actually happening when you're only seeing like some projections on the cave wall. Right. It it talks um, about. But I don't remember what the conclusion of it is. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he's talking about like this idea of like philosophical knowledge versus the knowledge of day-to-day people and it ends up being this weird flex on how he's like more smart than everybody else um but what, what he actually says in it is using one of his core philosophical beliefs which is the idea of forms so the idea of the allegory of the cave is that most people are like people who have been like chained inside a uh, a cave and like they're facing the back wall of the cave and they see the shadows of of 
things passing by people and, and animals and they see these shadows, but they think that that's all that's actually real. But one day one of them breaks free and realizes that like, oh, I, I was seeing like the shadow of a, you know, a, a deer or something like that. But now I've seen a real deer and it's so much more real than what I thought was reality, you know, right. the, and, and he's using this as an allegory for like what we see in our day-to-day -day lives, that there's this sort of cosmic, perfect, more real version of things in our lives. But, you know, he, he talks about forms in another, in a number of other places in his philosophy. And, and he has this, this concept of, of things that exist sort of outside of our existence. And it, it's, at first it sounds like really metaphorical and like really kind of, you know, metaphysically bizarre, but what he's actually getting at is, is concepts that He's trying to uh, categorize the way we think about it. So one of the main or one of the classic examples is the concept of a color, right? So basically he's right. saying that, you know, we talk about the concept of something being blue, right? And, you know, putting aside the whole like grade nine, like this is the same blue I see is the same blue you see, blah, blah, <laughs> yeah, blah, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like actually that kind of gets to the point of what he's saying, which is that blueness, like is blueness just a quality that each blue thing has or is blue a, a thing that exists independent of all those things are you able to like superimpose this is this other uh form onto things right and what he's trying to kind of come up with is like well is there like an independent blue that exists somewhere in the universe like can you find kind of primordial blue um yeah. and he sort of also puts this on other concepts which is more of a linguistic philosophical thing which is like you know you talk about something being you know a cat and you look at a cat and you know oh that's a cat but one cat is like really skinny and black and white and the other one's really big and fat and orange and it's kind of like well at what point are these different things not in the same category what at what point do they not uh, ascribe to the same form so like it's all about taxonomy where Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, you can point to a four-legged animal and be like, that's a dog. And then they see a, a mouse and they're like, hey, it's a little dog. And eventually you have to teach them that there are more categories than their child brains can sort of hold. And, and you sort of learn more as you go. You kind of can do a deeper dive. Yeah, sure. And anyone who's spent any time around a little kid knows that they will absolutely point at a dog and say cat, right? Like it's something that we have to kind of figure out as we go. The way he, he talks about this in, in terms of like evolutionary change is that both Plato and Aristotle have had this idea of something called the demiurge, which is, uh, it just means like the craftsman, but it, it kind of comes to mean more like the creator. Um, they right. have this idea of like a, more of like a watchmaker style uh, conception of, of a deity that's created the universe. Like somebody must have made it kind of thing, right? And right. they both uh, propose that if uh, being is powerful enough to have created the universe, they're also powerful enough to have imagined every single possible way for something to be and have created it whether or not they all exist you know temporally at the same time is is up for debate among people who ascribe to this theory but um the point being you can't just come up with new stuff they've already come up with it like there's nothing new yeah. under the sun kind of thing right and this so is the uh, aristotelian theory that i'm actually familiar with which is like there's like one perfect universe of concentric rings mm -hmm basically god makes no mistake so anything that exists in it is thought of in advance and planned and has a purpose right exactly so yes things can change over time but you know there is still that universal of you know cat catness and that 
there's also this uh, this theory called teleology, which is um, the idea of things having an intrinsic purpose or inevitability to them. So uh, the, the classic example there is like an acorn, right? Like an acorn can't help but become like an oak tree. And like you don't point to an acorn and say that is an oak tree, but like it's going to get there. It's, you know, planted and watered and tended, but all, you know, that, that stuff aside, like there's this inevitability of change to, to like a more perfect form or a more fulfilled form. Right. And their idea when it comes to species, which they do consider a type of universal, is that there is a teleology of trying to become the most perfect version to become closer to the universal form. Uh, oh as possible so yes things can develop you know people can breed a cow that's better at producing milk like we talked about early on but that's part of helping them fulfill their teleology of becoming the most perfect cow because cows produce milk and more milk means better cow and that's its universal purpose is this where the phrase platonic ideal comes from (laughs) it is yeah absolutely because you know the platonic ideal is usually more used in like geometry um, the, the classic example you'll hear is like a circle. Like it's basically impossible to draw a perfect circle. Right. And I mean, right. you, you can argue about that as much as you want, but like by the geometric uh, definition of it, it's really, really hard to do a perfect circle. And yet any of us can look at a circle and go, Oh, that's a circle. Even though none of them are, is like by definition, a proper circle, they're just close right. enough, but it's the same thing with these, uh, w- with these animal forms, right. Is that they're becoming more and more, uh, the more, they're becoming closer and closer to their platonic ideal of that thing, um, which is the only real source of change. But on sort of a macro evolution sort of perspective, you don't get new species coming up at all. Let's uh, let's switch over to uh, China, actually, because like Plato and Aristotle are going to have a, a pretty solid hold on Western philosophy for like a really, really long time. Um, <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll get back there. Don't worry. There's a Chinese philosopher, uh, Zhuang Zhou, uh, lived late 4th or early 3rd century BCE. Again, remember what I said about skipping over. Like, he's one of the foundational philosophers of Taoism. He's part of the 100 schools of thought period. Like, this is an extremely important uh, philosopher in Chinese thought. He stated that, you know, and, and from, from his observations, he stated that nature is in a state of constant flux things are always changing part of his sort of observation is like you know he talks about taking different types of plants and planting them in different places and seeing how they'll flourish in one place but not in another that other plants will have the opposite that you know things will uh, adapt to their surroundings like he's really looking at sort of adaptive uh, evolution and obviously that's not something that's like observable on a on a human scale but he he's noting the fact that you know, those environmental pressures really do exist. And he very specifically notes that humans are part of that mutability. His his contributions to Taoism are very much along the lines of like, listen, you know, we're, we're not separate from nature. We need to, you know, learn to work with it. And, and he's just saying, well, of course, if nature is part of this, uh, or if nature has this property of mutability and people are part of nature, therefore, you know? So Chinese thought is very, very much open to this idea of change over time. In fact, it's it's pretty foundational to some of their most important philosophy. And so this sort of uh, experimentation, if it is literal experimentation, mm-hmm. um, 
is it for like a philosophical end or is it supposed to be done like like is he doing it for practical reasons like if i plant this here it grows faster or bigger but for better fruit or is it uh is it purely just like a thought experiment uh, both i mean those those are very very fuzzy borders at this point in time right <laughs> all, all of these thinkers are writing on the nature of divinity and also how to cure toothaches and also uh, what season is best to plant which things and like they're they're very very diverse in their uh their interests and their and their expertise so the only reason i'm waffling on this is i don't think he would actually recognize any distinction between the two things that you just said necessarily fair enough <laughs> yeah yeah i uh, want to bounce back to europe for a little bit specifically talking about the stoics i'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the philosophy of the Stoics. It's, it comes up in the third century BCE, founded by uh, Zeno of Sidium. And it becomes... the only one I know. <laughs> <laughs> it, becomes, it, it becomes pretty important philosophically to the Roman Empire, which, you know, by extension is going to have a pretty important impact on Christian Europe, uh, even after the fall of, of Rome, right? So uh, it, it's a pretty big deal. We're not going to get into everything that the Stoics talk about because it's it's wide ranging, but generally speaking, you're, you're looking at sort of a detachment from values placed on emotions as good or bad and, and really just a, a matter of reacting to things in the moment, right? How this matters in terms of evolution is their embrace specifically of platonic essentialism so that sort of things have a nature or things have a, a cosmic uh, platonic ideal to them. Right. Cicero who is a prominent Roman writer in the first century BCE is the first one that I could find any uh, evidence of to describe the teleology of life as striving to produce life, quote, best fitted for survival. Okay. So <laughs> he's not describing, you know, the purpose of, of change over time to become uh, closer to a form. He's not talking about it being uh, you know, becoming more complex, which is a thing that's going to be uh, very popular later. He's talking about the the purpose of life becoming uh, being best suited to survive, and and that's a bit of a departure from what we've seen so far. It plays into that sort of lack of value judgment thing, right? Like he's he's looking at things from a very utilitarian point of view. I was going to say it seems less metaphysical, more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Now, like you what is function of this change and and how can we strive for it to become the best at our lives that we can be <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely and and i mean there's still you know some some questions about but what is best here but you know we, we could go around in circles all day on that stuff right sure um this all extends into saint augustine augustine of hippo lived 354 to 430 ce easily one of the most influential figures in early christianity possibly in all of christianity honestly I, I saw somebody basically refer to him as second only to St. Paul, which is a pretty big deal. He's really interesting in that a lot of his writings are things that would be considered very controversial by a significant number of Christians today. Um, specifically, he's uh, one of the earliest people to argue that Genesis, the, the creation story in the Bible, should not be taken literally. Oh, right. Yeah. Now he's he's not the first. There's a there was a, a thinker uh, named Oregon or uh, O R I G E N who who said the same uh, basically a century earlier. But I mean he's he's basically saying that like listen this is a this is an allegory like this isn't exactly how things happen. We need to kind of keep that in mind. 
he did believe that some things are perfectly created in the universe and and these are more metaphysical things so he's talking about like angels or the human soul or uh the universe itself but that things within the universe have the potential to change over time now his concept of things changing over time actually has more to do with devolution than uh any sort of improvement he saw it as like a corrupting force uh within life okay but he also brings in something that we will be encountering again later, which is pointing to something called spontaneous generation as proof. Are you familiar with spontaneous generation at all? I am not, no. This is a theory that's going to hang around until like literally the late 19th century. Like It's like Louis Pasteur who finally disproves this. Oh. Um, spontaneous generation is this idea that there are certain substances in the world from which life just spontaneously uh, uh, erupts from oh yeah i am familiar with this yeah that you could have like a piece of rotten meat and then flies would come out of it <laughs> exactly exactly it would spawn maggots uh and what it takes to disprove this obviously is is a beginning of an understanding of microbiology well and and uh you know especially looking at pasteur you know sanitization uh, mm-hmm. sterilization you know uh kind of big on his uh, his radar but it's not just uh you know rotten meat that's uh, seen to have this principle it's things like pond scum or or sludge things like that anything that you could basically uh find uh microorganisms growing from or uh insects laying eggs in things like that right um right. but again this is a this is a limitation of technology is really what it comes down to is yeah, of yeah, yeah, you have something where worms grow out of it spontaneously, and you kind of go, well, I guess it creates life. Like, what's the other explanation here? St. Augustine believed that these substances had been kind of imbued with uh, divine power from God to generate life, that this was a, a way that God could continue to sort of like indirectly affect things in, in the physical world. But it's also, when you look at it, kind of a direct refutation of genesis specifically from the you know all life was created in those first six days part where he's kind of going like well noah wasn't i know it wasn't because look here's life being created right here in this piece of meat right exactly yeah and and there's some people who are going to have some issues with these ideas but (laughs) in, in general less than you would think really augustine was an extremely influential writer and thinker and you know, through through people like him, it's really only um, sort of the change between species that becomes sort of difficult to reconcile. Changes within species, what would be called microevolution today, uh, by some people, is not necessarily that controversial, even that long ago. We'll look at the Islamic Golden Age. They had their heads on straight about some of this stuff. The science that was coming out of that region of the world in kind of the ninth through thirteenth centuries is is just amazing right um i I considered this for a standalone topic at some point honestly (laughs) i i would very much like to do it at some point i think we should definitely look into it um i i would worry that we would just completely run short on time like there's no way we could cover everything (laughs) man but it would it would be an excellent topic i agree Uh al jahiz wrote something called the book of animals in which he described uh food chains for the first time and described what you could describe as um, a struggle for survival and a pressure towards uh, fitness, basically saying like, listen, if there's only so much that a species can eat and there's only so much of that in the environment, then only the strongest or uh, best suited ones are going to survive. That's a pretty important idea, you know, a thousand years later. So for sure. 
Yeah. Does this go as far as to the, the describe like the balance of an ecosystem, or is it just sort of a, a list where it's like so and so eats this, and then you know as a result, the only the fittest of this can continue to survive? I mean, it's it's closer to the second one, but it's it's you know it's it's a it's a revolutionary idea at this point that there might be a limit to any sort of resource. Period. You know, that's right. a very very recent idea for a lot of people. In Europe, that's not going to really catch on until uh, the late 18th century, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, for for a very long time, you know, when when our population was much, much, much lower, uh, (laughs) it sort of seemed like you could pretty much do whatever you wanted and it wouldn't really affect anything. I've I've noticed that I'm bringing my 21st century ideas into this topic a lot. (laughs) That's okay. Scarcity of resources is at the top of that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's uh, something that's on most of our minds these days. Yeah, for sure. Uh, no, no, that's good. Because I mean, that's the sort of thing that I'm, I'm sure lots of people will be thinking as we're going through this stuff, right? That's, that's, that's worth examining on, on all of these, uh, these thinkers where it's kind of like, well, why didn't they just think of this? Well, they've never encountered it. That's they didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. They didn't have to reckon with it at all. Ibn Khaldun, 1332 to 1406. This guy, again, you know, no big deal. He just started the disciplines of historiography, sociology, economics, and demography. You know, just whatever on his spare time. No, no, an, an incredible thinker. He's he's the first one to propose that humans arose, quote, from the world of monkeys uh, oh. by, you know, making some very basic observations about our similarities between, you know, humans and primates. Yep. <laughs> but this is the first recorded uh, instance of of uh, that line being drawn. You know, we've, we've had a, a very kind of understandable tendency to think think of ourselves as extremely unique uh, in nature for a very long time. And I know some of these conclusions feel a little obvious now having, you know, all of this information presented to us from a fairly young age, but that's, that's a, that's a big one to point out, especially when, you know, your, your whole worldview is, is kind of built around the centrality of human beings. Uh, A lot of the, a lot of the topics that you and I talk about um, specifically, I mean, it, it happens in, in all sorts of topics, but but you and I especially, it's it's interesting how much of the development of human thought is just a continual movement of human beings out from the center of the universe, farther and farther to the edges of things, uh, becoming kind of less and less special. I like those kind of topics. <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. It's just it's a it's a trend worth noting. Is that you know we we have a tendency to centralize ourselves until kind of pull kicking and screaming away and dismiss the ego <laughs> <laughs> pretty much um he also believed that uh the boundaries between species are very very fuzzy and that things could very easily move either up or down see he he, he still had a fairly like hierarchical view of things but he would point to stuff like the, the one example i saw that i thought was really interesting was uh, he thought that you could move between the very highest order plants and the very lowest order animals, pointing to vines as being the highest order plants because they can kind of move and grow. Like if you watch a, a vine, even over the course of the day, they kind of like spin around trying to find something to grab onto. Um, right. And the lowest order of animals, which is worms, in his opinion, they're very, very simple organisms that are, you know, both both intellectually and and, you know, uh, anatomically speaking. And he basically went like, well, what's really the difference between a worm and a vine? And I mean, there's lots of differences there, but like, it's, it's not the worst argument I've ever, ever heard. 
make the argument that these plants are displaying some rudimentary intelligence. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, exactly. And and a lot of it involves being long and tubular and creeping and crawling. <laughs> yep. So it, quite I, the difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the same photo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, he said like changes can occur in organisms to advance or or diminish beings. He also thought that things could kind of fall back down that uh, ladder of complexity, which I thought was a, a really interesting take on things. Is there an example of that? I don't really understand. Oh, he didn't have any specific examples. He didn't. This isn't a. This is a philosophical argument. This isn't oh, okay. a. This isn't a. Uh, uh, I have evidence of a thing that was once this and is now that. It, it's more a matter of of looking at species. I, he, he's looking at he's looking at the similarity of of species in a way that taxonomists in in the Enlightenment will you know hundreds of years later and basically say like, listen, if you take everything and line it up beside all the stuff that's similar to each other. Like it's it's more of a kind of fuzzy spectrum than it is like a bunch of discrete things, right? Um, like a continuum where if you compare one thing to another, it might be above or below depending on how you place those values. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's more from those sorts of uh, observations and then making inferences from them that like, listen, some things must be able to move up or down or in between. Like this isn't a a discrete uh, step in creation. Speaking of which, we're, we're on to St. Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274 CE, who is the first major uh, Christian philosopher to take advantage of the new um, familiarity the West has with uh, the classical Greek thinkers. We've talked about this phenomenon in a couple of episodes, actually, specifically with you, um, where after the fall of Constantinople, uh, all these all these Greek thinkers move into Italy and basically bring all their translations of Plato and, and other uh, Greek thinkers with them and, and sort of reintroduce it to the Latin-speaking right, world. Right. St. Thomas Aquinas takes, you know, Greek thought, you know, especially Plato and Aristotle, uh, about you know forms and universal uh, universalities and comes up with this idea that's really important in like, way more topics than you'd think called the great chain of being which is this sort of like universal hierarchy which uh in his opinion is because it's made by god he, he sees it as an actual chain like links in a chain uh because it's created by god number one there are no gaps in the chain so there's no uh, there's no empty links where it's like, hey, I want to become, you know, I'm a bird right now, but I'm going to become one link above that bird. Like there's something filling that spot already. There's Got no, it. there's no mobility. It also means that because it was created by God, it's perfect and therefore immutable. You know, we, we usually talk about it more in like a, a political sort of uh, way talking about like the uh, the supremacy of the king above uh, the rest of the nobility above above the rest of the people, and how that's used to sort of enforce uh, political uh, power. But it's also used in the biological world, where it's basically like, listen, this is how things were created. Like a horse is a horse. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always going to be. Any changes? Of course, of course. <laughs> I set myself up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Any changes in the species, sure, that's fine, but it's still going to be a horse at the end of the day. It can't move away from its link. So it's like a, a biological class or a caste system where, <laughs> you, I mean, you're born a horse, you're going to be a horse. You're not going to, you know, try real hard and become a, a, a hawk at any point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what's more, because it's created by God and is therefore perfect, any attempt to deny your place on the chain or to sort of 
uh, act in defiance of that place is not only impossible, but it's also an act of defiance against God. And so like any fish that's flopping up on the banks, it's kind of like, oh, it's got too big for its britches. Uh, we got to we gotta do something about that. Company fish. <laughs> got to keep you got to keep them in their place man um i could do like, things like this idea <laughs> yeah oh 100% 100% it's it's a very convenient one for uh maintaining the status quo in fact that's sort of how it's created is specifically to do that yeah divine right etc mhm uh then we move on to the enlightenment and i mean we don't have time to get into every single person who had an effect on on these ideas in the enlightenment right because it's such an explosion of things but you know, in general, we're talking about a radical departure from medieval Christian philosophy, right? We have people questioning the Greek philosophers on things like medicine for the first time in 1500 years, which is baffling to me, but okay, here we are. We can we can highlight a couple of quick ones, though. For example, Carl Linnaeus, who develops the modern taxonomic system, like the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Uh, you know, it's not quite in that exact form, but they begin categorizing animals based on those uh, those classifications, and it really starts helping the biologic the, the biology world to see these similarities in that sort of blurred together way that we talked about centuries before in in the Islamic Golden Age. Right. Yeah. You have Georges Louis Leclerc, the Comte de Buffon, who suggests that as few as uh, 38 original ancestors of all mammals are possible with this idea of an internal mold. So he's saying that like, and, and they would have recognized something like 200 different mammal species at this point in time. So okay. he's saying that it is possible for things to differentiate within their own internal mold. So, you know, for example, he would say that like a dog and a wolf would share a, a similar like primeval mold and Got that... It. It could, uh, you know, it, it could vary along those molds to the point of being uh, separate species. So unable to, uh, well, I mean, that's a bad example. I was going to say unable, unable to interbreed, but it, it could differentiate into a new species, but it would still kind of retain an essential dogness to it, right? Yeah. Um, you can kind of look at, and, and a lot of this is kind of just going on feel, like just looking at stuff, uh, you know, going, listen, house cats and tigers are clearly both cats, and I know they're not the same species, but there's an innate catness to them, right? Got it. So it's like looking at a dog, a wolf, a dingo, a jackal, mm -hmm. a hyena, being like, I recognize that there are certain things happening here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I wouldn't confuse them, but they're all kind of doggy. <laughs> yeah, but they have these internal molds, which is that sort of limitation of the original form that are going to keep it within the the sort of they're going to keep it in the dog lane, right? Like it's not going to get so far removed that it no longer looks like a dog anymore is sort of his, his proposition here. Denis Diderot uh, is the first to suggest that new forms can arise in species through trial and error. So that, listen, maybe it's not teleology here. Maybe sometimes just something happens and it gives something enough of an advantage that uh, it sticks around in the, in the genome. Uh, he proposes absolutely no mechanism behind any of this, but you know, that's an idea that's already uh, floating around by kind of the, the mid uh, 18th century. So this is like the random mutation idea. Mm -hmm. And specifically this idea that like, well, if there's, if there's a difference that occurs, like the species is not going to go like, ah, that's no good. Like, you know, as if I'm, you know, ascribing some sort of like uh, agency to evolution, which is, is completely untrue. But uh, 
you know, it, it, those, those two things are just going to live their lives and whichever one happens to be more successful is going to be more successful. It's, it's this sort of, uh, kind of release of the, of the agency of, of, uh, or, or intentionality of, of changes within species. We've got Erasmus Darwin, who's the grandfather of Charles Darwin. He's the first person to propose that all warm-blooded creatures share a single common ancestor at some point in history. Okay. Now, this has problems that start kind of showing up elsewhere in the natural sciences at this point in time, which is that, like, if there was enough time for all warm-blooded animals to evolve from a single common ancestor, how old is the world? Oh, I see. And yeah. this is and this is a problem that uh, geology is starting to deal with around this time. And, and, and that's that's its own debate as the age of the world gets pushed further and further back. But basically up until this point, people are going off of calculations that have been made by Jewish and Christian scholars using the Bible to calculate the age of the earth, essentially by calculating all those ages in those like genealogy lists that are in there. Yeah, so-and-so began so-and-so, and how many generations does that have to be, and if every generation is this many years, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the, you know, the the common date that gets thrown around, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different ones, but the most common is somewhere around 4,000 years BCE uh, for the creation of the Earth. And, and you start looking at stuff like this, or, you know, geology starts becoming a, a proper discipline where people are looking at, you know, geologic strata and things like that and going like, oh, it can't be 6,000. It, yeah. it, it just can't. It just doesn't work. Um, well, I never thought of biology as a vector for that sort of thinking, where you can look at like all the different species of like beetles, for example, and be like, we have all of this. It, they didn't show up overnight. They didn't show up even over the last 4,500 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be longer ago than that. That's that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's It's also interesting at this period of time, this sort of like gentleman naturalist sort of category of, of scientists who are just these guys who are like wealthy enough not to have to actually work a job and they end up becoming like really proficient in like all these different disciplines because they were all so new that it didn't take a whole lot to learn everything there was to know about it. And all of a sudden you have someone who's making discoveries in, you know, chemistry and biology and geology. And it, like, it's, it's, it's a really interesting time. Like one person could knock out all this stuff on their own. 1796, a guy named Georges Cuvier publishes a really interesting study which identifies mastodon and mammoth uh, uh, remains as a different species from elephants, which was the prevailing theory up until then, which confirms uh, uh, something that was up for debate up until this point in time, which is whether or not it was possible for a species to go extinct. Oh, uh, okay. Which sounds crazy. Oh, looking back, of course, it looks good. Sounds crazy. <laughs> but you have to remember that spontaneous generation is still in the mix when it comes to our understanding of biology. Oh, true. And it's kind of like, well, can you actually kill all of them? <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah. If out. <laughs> saying it like that sounds like a bit of a challenge, which was unintentional. But I'm sure some of them, <laughs> I'm sure someone out there took it on themselves. It's like, well, there's I mean, one way, <laughs> one way to find out. <laughs> Cock shotgun. <laughs> And then we get to Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who in 1809 publishes a work called Philosophie Zoologique, uh, which proposes a synthesis of a bunch of different ideas up until then. Basically says, look, let's, co let's collect everything we know on the matter into one place and see what we come up with. So 
basically he comes up with this theory of spontaneous generation continually producing new lower life forms and that any lower life form the lower it is the the more recently it was generated through spontaneous generation the the more recently it climbed out of the muck or the fetid meat or whatever it happened to have climbed out of and that there is a teleology of increasing complexity so all life is driven to become more and more complex uh, over time however there's also a second force at work which is an adaptive force persuading species to specialize to their environment so it's kind of combining everything that we've worked with across centuries and centuries here right like this combines platonic ideas with uh fairly new enlightenment ideas um this adaptive force is going to sort of pull species one way or the other so things that are at the same points on that complexity you can think of it as like a like a line graph right as things increase on the uh, on the one axis, they get pulled one way or the other on the other axis. And so things at a similar level of complexity can still look different because of that adaptive force. So you can have two birds at the same level of complexity that look completely different because one is designed to eat insects while the other one is designed to eat fruits, right? Got it. Okay. He also believed something that has been ridiculed for a really long time, but is actually kind of coming back into vogue with ideas like epigenetics, which is that complexity is differentiated based on the use or disuse of characteristics in like a very direct physical way. So the, like the, the main example would be like using building muscle through exercise, right? Um, if you, uh, if you run a lot, you're going to get bigger legs. Um, the idea that being then that that could be passed along to your offspring to some extent, maybe not necessarily, in a one-to-one way, but that over time, the more often that that gets passed along, the more that that builds uh, that trait as a distinct trait of uh, that species. The classic example in Lamarckism is uh, giraffe. This idea that giraffes would literally like strain their neck, like physically, like stretch their neck out, um, stretching like the muscles and the sinews uh, between the, the, the vertebrae to a point where their their necks would be like slightly longer by the time they procreated and then their children would be slightly longer again and that that's the mechanism by which giraffes would over time select to become you know to have longer and longer necks that's the example i've heard yeah yeah it's it's the one that shows up in every you know grade 10 biology book right <laughs> yeah exactly that and the polar bears that. <laughs> yeah yeah the polar bears too but you know, when you when you look at the totality of understanding that we have up until this point, Lamarckism is not actually that unreasonable, especially because, you know, things like genetics have not been established yet at all. He's the first one to propose a unified, well, I mean, at least publish a unified uh, theory of how all of these different ideas could work together and describe a, a slow change over time of different species. So, I guess the question at this point is, well, if we understand all of this stuff so well, then what's the big deal about Darwin? Yeah, yeah. He's going to put the exclamation point on the end of it. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll start talking about Charles Darwin. Sounds good. Back on HI 101 here with Kevin Miller. Hey. And we've been talking about like a lot of people that aren't Darwin that had a lot to say about evolution. 
<laughs> yeah, all those people you've never heard of. Well, or maybe heard of, but didn't know that they did evolution stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's a little more accurate. There's there's a bunch of big names in there that, that weighed in on what on evolution, which is really interesting to me because I, I you know, they're like I said at the top of the show, it always sort of feels like Darwin is the, the beginning and end of this stuff. Like we had never even considered it until he showed up. Um, you know, he he heads out to the Galapagos and he sees the finches and boom, evolution fully forward. Yeah. yeah um but but yeah that's that's not the case at all what what darwin enters into is like a very long very rich uh history of uh understanding where exactly or how exactly species change and adapt over time what darwin does essentially is both find evidence for it and codify it in a uh simplified cohesive manner but um, we, we, can, we can get around to that when we actually get to the part where he writes the book. Let's not jump the gun here. Darwin was uh, trained as a, a doctor, actually, and, uh, but, but uh, pivoted to be a, a naturalist fairly early on in his career. And really, the, the voyage on the HMS Beagle was um, very much the start of his career as a, a, a naturalist. The Beagle was a... a Royal Navy vessel. And basically what it was doing was uh, circumnavigating the globe over the course of a few years. Uh, the original plan was three years. It ended up being almost five. Basically looking for safe shipping lanes for British ships to make sure that the Royal Navy could get anywhere they needed to in the world safely. So they, you know, they spent more time kind of docked places, uh, taking measurements of the, of the ocean currents than they did really sailing anywhere, which is uh, how Darwin gets such a fantastic chance to do some work on categorizing new species. Was that his intention in going on this trip is to basically do the world tour of naturalists? Yeah. I mean, what would, what would normally happen with a, uh, a voyage like this is that the ship's doctor would ask, would act as a naturalist and they would try to collect as many species uh, as possible when it's a sort of a survey mission like this. The captain of the Beagle at this point, he's actually the second captain of the Beagle. The first one uh, committed suicide in a, it, it's this whole big, long thing. He's, he's, a, he's a very young man, and he realizes that after the first voyage that they had taken, that there was just simply too much for the doctor to categorize on his own and uh, decided that it would be much easier just to bring someone along specifically to do this. Um, okay. You know, he, he saw his mission as being a little bit broader than just taking soundings, basically. Um, he wanted to have an, a, a record of basically the uh, what, what these places might be that uh, be like uh, when British ships stop there. So, okay, it's almost like putting together like a, a brochure or pamphlet or something like that to say when you're making this trip, you can stop at scenic so and so and see these sorts of creatures. And yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, to it's some extent, productive. <laughs> to some extent, yeah, but also like, don't eat this one; it will kill you. And watch out for yeah. that big bug. Oh boy, it's trouble. You know, things like yeah. that. Yep. Um. So Darwin really spends uh, the next. Uh, nearly five years just exploring and writing and he's actually fairly new to uh, naturalism like he's not he's not terribly experienced he doesn't really understand a lot of the findings he makes until he gets back consults with experts and uh, has somebody tell him like uh, hey do you actually realize what it is you have here which is really interesting but he was very he was very eager 
and uh, took tons of notes, tons of drawings, lots of samples, and would periodically make copies of his uh, journal and mail them back to Britain, where uh, they were actually being published in limited circles to people who were really interested in following the journey. Like they were very, very intrigued by what he was finding. There's this kind of concept of Darwin is like spending all his time, like collecting bugs and stuff. He actually spent four times as much time collecting fossils, uh, than, uh, than he did actually, uh, hunting live specimens. And a lot of the findings that he makes, uh, that are, that are most crucial are from the fossil record rather than sending mockingbirds back to Britain in a box. Right. I was going to ask about fossil record because we haven't touched on it quite yet. What what year are we at about now? Uh, this is the uh, early 1830s. Uh, so fossil record. Um, what to say about that? This is a this will take a couple of minutes, but that's okay. Uh, so it's really considered like like paleontology isn't really a thing, or it's just becoming a thing in the early 1830s. Before this, it just would have been considered geology for a very long time. Uh, fossils, even though people were finding fossils, weren't necessarily considered or recognized, I suppose, as a record of a living organism. They were considered sort of geological uh, phenomena, the same way like a geode would be. Huh. So something was causing, you know, rocks near the ocean to, you know, form like little seashell spirals. And what could possibly be doing that? Because there's no seashell left, right? Like fossils are, it's one of those things that I feel like every kid finds out at some point and gets kind of disappointed about. that fossils aren't actually like the bones themselves. It's the minerals right. have like seeped into the bones and, and hardened and that actual, any actual like biological uh, material is most likely gone. There's nothing there to suggest, you know, th that there's anything biological about them necessarily. You can look at something like that and kind of go like, oh, well, the, the common sense sort of conclusion here is that it's, you know, those those fern prints in the rock are from a fern. But that's not really like it, it took up until the late Enlightenment to uh, start recognizing them as such. Uh, that oh. really doesn't fit into like a medieval worldview, right? No, and I didn't figure it did. I just wondered if, you know, at some point someone did recognize it as, hey, this is, you know, I don't know what it is necessarily, but it's bone shaped. And that means that it's probably was shaped by a bone rather than like a firm print or like a seashell or something like that. Right. Um, something that you might not be able to recognize as any animal that you're familiar with, you know? Yeah, I, I would say... I would say that the the early 1800s is when you really start seeing that line of thinking exploding i i i couldn't give you a specific person or a date on that but like think back to the mastodon uh bones being differentiated from elephant bones now keep in mind that uh you know the the ways that mastodons and mammoths have been preserved aren't necessarily always fossilization um yeah. the way that you would see you know things that are massively prehistoric tens of millions of years old but mm -hmm. this recognition that there could be a record of animals or plants that no longer exist that finding by Georges Cuvier is really a watershed moment for that okay yeah I, I mean it's it's funny because when you look at something like well how does how do dinosaurs fit into this it's like well people have been digging up evidence of dinosaurs for hundreds and thousands of years um they just don't recognize them as dinosaur bones right it, it's anything from oh this is a weird 
to. <laughs> well, yeah, this is anything from like, oh, it's a weird geological phenomenon that happened to produce something that looks like a, a bone. Isn't that crazy? To like, well, clearly giants lived here. Like that's like I'm I'm, I'm not being facetious. Like that's that's a that's a real thing that would happen, right? Yeah, here there'd be dragons. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so it's it's more this recognition of what they've found as significant from a paleontology uh point of view than it is necessarily the actual act of collecting them and that sea change is coming uh in the early 1800s um okay. so much so that when when darwin is is there he's collecting fossils you know with the intent of collecting fossils right uh mm-hmm. he, he's looking for records of uh organisms one of the one of the biggest discoveries that he makes uh, in Argentina is the discovery of uh, fossil records for megafauna in the Americas, which is wow. yeah it's something that showed up in you know my kid books. I don't know about you, but like uh, you know giant armadillos and uh, you know uh, giant rats that are sort of vaguely related to capybaras, but even bigger and and things like that, right? He actually thought he had found like a giant llama at one point, but it, that's not what it turned out to be. But like this idea that like, oh, there were these animals that lived here and not only did they live here, but they were like significantly like markedly different from any organism that we understand today. It was a bit of a, a revelation when he finds these. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I don't know what you would have thought initially. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But again, but again, this is the kind of thing where it got sent back to to the uk and people were like um do you understand what you have here like i think he's just collecting data and letting everyone else connect the dots <laughs> essentially yeah yeah that's that's exactly what it was obviously this is the famous part time spent in the galapagos islands were uh particularly influential mostly because they're so isolated but also there's a, a an extremely large variety in the number of species that are found there it's a really um ecologically unique place in that manner so he would find um species that were extremely similar but in slightly different uh regions of the islands you know there's this one bird that was uh you know there are three different varieties that live in like kind of uh bands across the islands running north north to south and he's kind of going like well what's going on here and he he realizes you know decades later that what he's uh seeing is is a a species differentiation uh in action it's a species that hasn't differentiated yet but is in kind of the process of doing so right oh okay he noted uh mockingbirds that were really similar to those that he found in chile but were different enough that he suspected there might be some sort of uh you know relation between the two he found uh the the famous finches the the finches he didn't he didn't understand anything was weird about the finches it was uh it wasn't until he got it back to an extremely famous ornithologist in britain named john gould before uh gould told him like listen what you have here is four different varieties of the same finch um the the deal with the finches if if anyone's kind of going what are you talking about finches Uh, there, there were these finches that had developed um extraordinarily differently specialized beaks there were four different uh varieties on on the galapagos islands depending on uh their diet the ones that were adapted to uh live on the ground had had kind of thicker chunkier beaks that were good for like cracking open shells whereas the 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 finches that lived uh in the trees tended to have like narrower beaks so they could kind of get into the the wood of the tree and kind of scoop out insects but what he's seeing there and 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 sort of the idea that this inspires in him is that you know yes these these environmental 
uh, aspects will help to differentiate members of a similar species until uh, they become different species, uh, functionally speaking. Mm -hmm. When he gets back, he spends a long time kind of collecting his, his notes and, you know, kind of publishing things. He also spends a lot of time encountering like new ideas that uh, some of which are, are very directly related to uh, evolution, which he's become very interested in. Uh, some of them uh, end up being really influential, uh, specifically the work of Thomas Robert Malthus. Uh, we kind of alluded to his stuff earlier, um, but Malthus is most famous for a type of thinking known as, well, it, it'll just be referred to as Malthusian thought, which when he develops it, doesn't necessarily have any like connotations to it, but these days a hundred percent does. Malthus is the first person to start talking about the fact that like, listen, the earth only has so much in the way of resources. Specifically, he's talking about food and right. he basically recognizes that like, listen, our uh, ability to produce food increases more or less linearly and population growth happens uh, geometrically, so uh, exponentially, basically. Yeah. And basically, he goes, Hey, if you plot a straight line versus a curved line, there's a point where the curved line blows past the straight line. Yeah, and then what? <laughs> and then what? And he, he refers to this as a Malthusian incident, I believe, or a Malthu Malthusian event, sorry. Basically, saying, like, at this point, there is a crisis within the human population at which millions of people will die of famine because there just won't be enough food for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of the ideas that he puts forward at this point in time have been not refuted so much as found to be incomplete in that, uh, technologically speaking, we've found ways to increase our carrying capacity, which is the sort of the, that, that straight line, the amount of food we can develop or, or, or produce, sorry. Our carrying capacity has, has always managed to grow faster than, uh, the population. It's been found that, you know, the earth's carrying capacity is actually quite a bit higher than our, our current population. Uh, famine is usually just a dis distribution issue, uh, more than it is an actual like production issue. Right. But so, so like we have tons of food available in like first world con or developed countries that mm -hmm. is wasted. And then in other parts of the world, they don't have enough. They can't produce enough. Yeah, correct. But like our, our carrying capacity was increased by like GMOs and stuff like that, where we've bred things to produce more food. Yeah, that's correct. And and, and I mean, develop other developments in agricultural uh, technology, right? I mean, it, it's the sort of thing where like, you know, he can't... Uh, you know, Malthus was writing in the in the 1700s. Like he can't anticipate, for example, like the tractor, right? Like the, the yeah, combine. Right. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of technology that has been produced since, or, or has has been developed since his life that he had absolutely no way of of uh, predicting. And you know, that's that's one of those spots. I've I've talked about it before, but like that's one of those spots where really up until the modern world, really up until the uh, the industrial revolution. There's a lot of people who exist where, while kind of on uh, on cosmic time scales, yes, yeah. things have have developed and changed technologically speaking. But there were a lot of people who lived in that period where, you know, the technology they were surrounded by on a day to day basis, from the time they were a child till the time they were you know dying of old age, was essentially the exact same. And there was really no reason to believe that anything really ever changed. Yeah. Um, and in history where it's like if the technology 
isn't changing, then you're basically using all of your available time to keep yourself alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there is that part, but it's also this this expectation where it's like, well, if nothing has changed in my lifetime, why would anything ever change later? Ever was left <laughs> Yeah, we we live in this we live in this era where I I don't even really think about the fact that you know thirty years from now my life is going to look significantly different. Uh, yeah. just based on technological progression because the the life that I've lived so far has been marked by significant technological changes right um, yeah. and 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 I've seen oh, some yeah yeah we, we've got a we've got an interestingly unique perspective on some of that stuff right um, man I, I carried floppy disks to school at one point <laughs> yep you know it, it, I, I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself a little bit here, but like keep, <laughs> keeping that in mind, like moving, moving through all the different, anyways, we, we've seen so much change that it's a, it's a natural part of our world. It's an understood part of our world to the point of like not being something that's necessarily considered. The same thing applies in reverse to these people. There's no reason for them to expect that anything is going to come along to improve the carrying capacity of earth to such an extent that it will have a marked difference on a Malthusian event. Hmm. I'd be curious to see if he had like a predicted timeline where it's like, Hey, by like 1950, we're going to run out of food. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I, I can't remember, honestly, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I might look into that for you. He, he's an interesting guy. Malthus is someone that I'm going to be talking about again soon, because uh, one of the things that I, I want to talk about uh, in an upcoming topic, uh, is, is, uh, interestingly, uh, interestingly enough, uh, social Darwinism along with, uh, eugenics, because the, oh, okay. the, the perspective that, uh, Malthus is brought up in generally speaking, uh, in modern times is this idea of a catastrophic event for, uh, humanity as a species and the, pressures that it puts on us as you know societies and as you know a, a full species and uh the potentially difficult decisions that need to be made in that circumstance and it ooh. very very quickly yeah yeah ooh, it very very quickly moves into some very dark places yeah sacrifices that need to be made etc <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. yes yeah it, it's it's a controversial idea now you know with with you know in regards to malthus this is like he he was a fatalist right like what he saw in this was like oh no like we're headed for disaster and everything's going to be terrible yeah, yeah. yeah not like well we need to get out ahead of this which is you know how some of this stuff is going to end up kind of turning out later on but mm -hmm. how malthus plays into darwinism true darwinism not social darwinism which by the way darwin had absolutely nothing to do with he had very little to say on you know, eugenics or, uh, you know, the differences in different races or anything like that. It, it's, it's, uh, not a focus of his, of his work. He didn't advocate for any of this sort of eugenics style, uh, thinking, but in any case where Malthus plays in here is that Darwin reads Malthus and realizes that if humanity could hit a Malthusian crisis, you know, a limited amount of resources for whatever reason mm -hmm. that, there's no reason that couldn't be applied to literally any species and that the uh, pressures put on a species by a limit of resources for whatever reason, be it competition from another uh, species, whether it be just growing population numbers, whether it be uh, some sort of other catastrophic event, maybe you 
rely on fruit trees for your source of food and, and there's a forest fire and all the fruit trees burn down, right? It could be anything. Yeah. That pressure is going to be a, a, a pressure on which members of that species end up living long enough uh, to procreate and that that could be a mechanism by which species change over time because you know if you have a thousand birds and you only have enough food for 600 well the fastest 600 if it's about getting there quickest or the best flyers if it's about getting highest or whatever the whatever the criteria is by which they get their resources the best 600 are the ones that are going to live to see the next winter right like that's that's just basic math basically is, is what it comes down to that means that whichever criteria defines success in that particular pressure are the ones that are more likely to get passed on in the future. Furthermore, it's not necessarily about survival of the fittest, which is a phrase that gets attributed to Darwin quite a bit and isn't really what, like, that's that's not a Darwinian concept necessarily, or at least not the way that it's used in terms of like a, you know, a very individualistic winner-take-all sort of concept. Fittest in this uh, in this circumstance is just literally whatever allows uh, something to keep living longer. If that right. means running away from predators, that's fit. If it means the best hider, that's fit. If it means right. attracting a mate better, that's fit. Any of these things can work as a, a species fitness sort of test. It doesn't matter. Like there's no value judgment attached to it, uh, and that's the thing that that is a, a big change from that teleological thought of somebody like Malthus, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And what that also suggests is that there's really no hierarchy of complexity in organisms because there's no real drive for increased complexity if complexity is something that threatens the survival of your species. No, so, that makes sense. So if you live in a if you live in a, an environment where limited resources are, are are just a reality, maybe not having biological complexity that takes a lot more energy uh, is a way to make your species more successful. So you know bacteria floating around the the uh, magma vents at the bottom of the ocean don't necessarily want to be a highly complex organism. Not that he knows about those, but you know, first example that comes to mind, right? so this idea of scarcity uh has has a major effect on his his uh developing of his theory so he spends about 15 years developing these ideas writing them down outlining what he uh, uh describes as like his great work and in 1859 he publishes on the origin of species now this he considers more of like an abstract than his actual greatest work he basically says like something bigger is coming down the line in his original outline, he actually does include a section addressing human beings, but he ends up scrapping it. Just to zoom out a little bit, there are other thinkers that are talking about evolution at this point in time, right? There have been for a long time. It's not like he doesn't know how it's going to be received by the general population. Uh, right. If anything, he knows too well which topics about evolution are touchy subjects no. and which ones are easily accepted by the general population. I feel really going with this. <laughs> You see exactly where it's going. The, the thing that's difficult to accept for some people is that human beings are just another animal. Yep. <laughs> it has theological ramifications. It has just sort of ego ramifications. 
it's a difficult uh, idea to accept. This is kind of what we were talking about earlier about moving ourselves away from the center of the universe, right? It's 100% a hit to the ego. It's it's accepting that you're part of a greater system and not on top of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there's the, all the ideas that go along with it, right? Like your responsibility to the rest of that system, which, as you pointed out earlier, is a very 21st century idea uh, that we're putting on top of it that's probably not being considered, you know, mid-industrial uh, revolution when, you know, let's fill the air with coal dust. What's the big deal? Exactly. But, but there there are a lot of questions that get raised about it, right? So he ends up leaving out human. I mean, he kind of sidelong refers to it at a couple of points, but he never directly addresses uh, human descent. Public response to this book is basically what he expects, maybe even a little better than what he expects, partially because he's done that sort of risk mitigation before actually publishing it, right? Careful editing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, a lot of Origin of the Species, if you if you read it, is... Uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but like a, a healthy portion of it is basically anticipating objections and criticisms of his theories and refuting them before people have the ability to. So like, it's a lot of like, so some people are going to say this about it. Well, this is, you know, this is how I explain that, or this is how I respond to that. Um, yep. He's anticipating those criticisms, which which seems to actually work and, and help knock down some of those uh, critiques. But in general, you know, the, the concerns that, that are raised against his theories of natural selection, which is, is primarily what Origin of Species is uh, writing about. Primarily, the, uh, the objections are theological in nature. It's people who ascribe to a very strict uh, interpretation of the Bible. But even then, there are, there are plenty of uh, religious denominations who either accept or are completely ambivalent to the idea of uh, evolution, even even right from the get go, I, I would say in general, uh, criticism ends up being less directly about his work, and more about sort of responding to a, a, a personal projection onto Darwin of what one thinks about evolution in general. You know okay. what I mean? It wasn't necessarily arguing against Darwin; it was setting Darwin up as a straw man for uh, closely held personal beliefs about these things. There are also people who prefer, you know, the Lamarck model of evolution. You know, that purpose-driven evolution or that hierarchical-driven evolution is is kind of preferable to some people's egos. Um, you know, not not everybody jumps on board right away, but it's it's taken quite well. It's it's actually quite popular, not just within scientific circles, but there are a lot of people who are reading Darwin's work, um, you know, through newspapers and things like that, which is a very like. Uh, egalitarian uh, method of communication you know there right. are there are very uh very poor workers who are reading about darwin and reading darwin's own words as they're published in various newspapers so it spreads quite quickly and, and is fairly well received something really interesting happens just two years later in 1861 which is uh the discovery of an archaeopteryx fossil yeah. now there we go Darwin wouldn't know about this for another couple of years. I don't think it makes into. I think it makes into like the fourth edition that he finally addresses it. Okay. But Archaeopteryx is a really interesting fossil, um, specifically because very shortly after Origin of the Species, it definitively gives proof of something that Darwin uh, talks about in his uh, in his work, which is that listen we're going to be able to find transitional species. We'll find records of transitional species. Things don't just 
come into being as they are. Things don't just jump uh, from one species to the next, which is something that certain thinkers have proposed. There's a gradual growth from one to the other. And what they find in Archaeopteryx, for anyone who's not familiar, is basically an exact halfway point between dinosaurs and birds. It's a really interesting fossil. It's, it's well worth looking up a, a photo of it. It is just a lizard with feathers. Kind of weird looking, but clearly like pretty close to halfway between the two. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting. The proof comes so quickly after the work that we can kind of just point to it and say like, yeah, this backs up his theories. Um, yeah, to, pre- to predict something basically and then to have proof within a couple of years is <laughs> pretty great. Yeah, called the shot. It's right there. Yeah. In 1862, Darwin publishes his next book, The Extremely Riveting Fertilization of Orchids. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because it, he's he's expecting this to be kind of like part one of what, what he keeps calling his, his great work. Um, okay. And what it does that Origin of the Species doesn't do as, as much is it goes into like excruciatingly uh, fine detail with evidence and uh, supporting theories and uh, um, even speculations on mechanisms about not only like orchids, but also the insects that fertilize them. Basically, it's stuff that we would cover in pretty early biology classes at this point, which is like, you know, when a flower grows a, a deeper and deeper flower part, the, the the insects that need to fertilize them need to grow like longer and longer noses to get to the pollen, right? Right. And that these two types of species tend to evolve in in concert with each other right uh, it's not as though one is even necessarily leading the other it's that the two are reacting to each other in in ways that sort of bring them in different directions right and what's really interesting about fertilization of orchids isn't just proven accounts of like parallel evolution and the demonstration of natural selection is like a, a real plausible theory for explaining that that development the other thing it does is he uh, predicts the existence of insects based on flowers that had been recovered from certain parts of the world. Uh, okay, okay. And says so like... See, like there's a flower that looks like this, and so I bet that there's an insect that has to look like this in order to feed from it. <laughs> exactly. It's specifically an orchid from Madagascar, I believe. He He calls the insect, he calls the insect that fertilizes this orchid, and it's discovered. They find it. They find the they find the insect that looks essentially exactly like he's proposing. Oh, I love when this happens in science. It's, <laughs> I love when you can predict where Neptune is because of the way that everything else orbits in, in our solar system, like that sort of idea. Yeah, I, I think this is what distinguishes a scientific theory from sort of the colloquial uh, usage of the word theory, which is a thing that's occasionally used to attack, you know, evolution. Well, it's just a theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. The fact that that's not really what a scientific theory is, a scientific theory is a model for the way that things work that is proven through testing. You know, you you put a theory in place, you make predictions using that theory. If the predictions come true, then it's a good theory. And if they don't come true, then the theory needs to be revised. I mean, gravity allows you to, to predict, to extrapolate. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, gravity is a theory. Like you can't just, you know, just throw out the word theory and, and discount anything you want, right? Right. Um, but that's because we have a model of how gravity works, right? And it's a pretty good one. Um, <laughs> uh, similarly with the theory of, of evolution, it's it's a good theory because he uses it to make predictions and those predictions are uh, are proven. 
by the way, the word evolution, uh, or specifically the word evolve, is only actually used once in uh, The Origin of Species. It's not really a word used to describe what we mean by evolution at this point in time. Um, it's going to start to mean that, but it's it's actually got a completely different uh, usage in biology. It's specifically with embryonic distinction. We don't have to get into the whole thing, but the, the word is so inextricably linked with Darwin at this point. I thought it was really interesting that he barely uses it himself. Huh. There's a few other advances that happen in this period of time that sort of set the stage for Darwin to finally tackle the idea of human evolution. There's a bunch of them, but two of the major ones are a publication of a work by uh, Sir Charles Charles Lyell, known as the Ge- Geological Evidences of the Antiquity of Man. Keep in mind that geological here uh, is still kind of re- referring to the fossil record. Okay. Um in which uh, Sir Charles Lyle lays out uh, all the evidence that's been collected up until this point that there is such a thing as prehistory, basically. Okay. And this prehistory isn't necessarily all that long at this point in time, but, I mean, up until this is published in the 1860s, the concept of human beings existing before written language is a controversial one. Yeah, I can see that. The <laughs> idea being that most models are like that we of that we sprung forth fully formed and mm-hmm. that's what we started you know, having conversations with God and angels and so on. And yeah. the idea that would if we were doing that, then we were probably writing too. Is yeah. that the idea? Yeah, yeah, of course. I well I mean it's it's also a it's also a lack of evidence sort of thing, right? Like how do we know people yeah. existed if we don't have it written down? It, this is a this is the thing that comes up all the time, both from, from audience members and guests asking me to do like, Oh, well, can you talk about like, uh, the origins of agriculture? And I'm always like, no, (laughs) I have a lot of information about that. (laughs) I I can't do that because that's not what history does to some extent. That's what archeology span can do, but you know, there's, there's a certain point in human development where I, I basically have to say, I don't have any information on that. It's, we, we didn't, if if anyone wrote it down, it did not survive. We have no records of it whatsoever. And that's just completely outside of the purview of history, right? Right. The second major work that comes up in this kind of interim period is Thomas Henry Huxley's work, Man's Place in Nature. Huxley is an interesting guy in that he was actually friends with Darwin, but he was like this... How to describe it? <laughs> he was like a confrontational atheist, Ah, good. (laughs) And while Darwin was trying to figure out like a palatable way of approaching all of this stuff, Huxley was looking to make people look dumb. And, (laughs) you know, that's not always going to be a good way to make friends, (laughs) especially if you're talking in the 1860s. So uh, Huxley lays out basically all of the um, biological evidence for uh, human beings being primates. And specifically, he uh, th- there was a there was another guy that had I, I forgot his name published a bunch of work uh, around this time, basically using anatomical structures to try and prove that human beings aren't primates. Okay. There's some specific like brain structures that he had pointed to. He uh, claimed that uh, other primates didn't uh, have a hippocampus in their brain. Like, there's a bunch of little like it gets it gets very very detailed and not only is huxley really brash he's also a much better anatomist than this other guy okay so he spends the whole book going like yes they do yes we do yep these are the exact same here's all the evidence and then 
not only destroying this guy's arguments, it's just like imagining the YouTube videos of biologists gets owned on, you know. Yeah, totally. That's what I'm picturing is, is somebody who's like, I'm going to refute him, but I'm going to do it in the angriest, loudest way possible because <laughs> I want them to know how smart I am. It's got a thumbnail like someone just threw a bucket of water at him. Um, <laughs> anyways, so he spends part of the work uh, refuting all of these arguments, but then he sp- spends the rest of it actually laying out uh, his own like positive proofs, right? Like he's he's basically pointing out like the fact that human beings are uh, anatomically closer to gorillas or chimpanzees than the higher order primates are to you know lower order you know monkeys and things like that right and basically saying like okay well if we consider like lemurs in the same family as orangutans then why would we not consider humans in the same family as orangutans like it fails all the tests of taxonomy at that point in time that's essentially the argument that's being made here um Mm -hmm. it's also just done in a really inflammatory manner (laughs) Yeah, he's also being a jerk about it. <laughs> yes, um, the response to this is is uh, yeah, a, a lot stronger than what we saw with Origin of the Species, but it's also good evidence, and it's one of those things where sometimes the right message delivered the wrong way doesn't reach as many people, <laughs> but it it still re- reached some. You know, there's a lot of comments along the lines of like well, this raises some awkward questions. Like if uh, human beings evolved from uh, a less developed species, then are human beings like the pinnacle of evolution or could we evolve further? And then there's a lot of like, I don't want to think about that. What does that even mean? (laughs) I just just don't really want to consider that thought, idea, feeling. Well, yeah, because then the next thought is, in which way am I faulty? (laughs) 100%. Absolutely. (laughs) No, of course it is. Uh, and, and you know, continues that, that movement away from the, the center, right? Medicine, I don't think, has progressed to the point where we can point at, like, you know, specific, like, organs that we don't really need anymore and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting there, though, right? We, we, are, we are nearly at that point in this era where right. they, you know, people are looking sidelong at the appendix going like, but... Exactly. But do we we actually? And well, I mean, the the simple one is is wisdom teeth. Right, exactly. Teeth that actively cause you harm and are fully unnecessary. Yeah, it's a vestige of 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 us having a much larger jaw than we do now. And it can it can just having one and having it go the wrong way can kill you uh Uh before modern medicine. That is not a that that's not advantageous. You know, that that doesn't make sense from a design standpoint. How is that detrimental yeah yeah how is that how is that a how is that a how is that a teleological uh adaptation right how does how does more teeth help you and i mean in a wider context that points to a bigger problem with teleology which is what what exactly is better in the context of evolution right it's it's a it's a it's a value-free process and evolutionary traits that help in one area can harm in another and it's kind of up to random chance as to whether or not that uh the help in one place outweighs the harm in another uh right. you know in the in the context of human beings having that big old skull for a big old brain kind of outweighs the idea that maybe some people are going to get an abscess and that's that's all there is to it but if, if you subscribe to lamarckism that makes no sense 
having the crowd warmed up by uh, Huxley in 1871, Darwin finally uh, uh, publishes The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, which is his work finally addressing the possibility of human evolution and does so in a, in a much more palatable way. And all in all is taken surprisingly well uh, by the vast majority of the public uh, and the scientific community. It lays things out in a clear and concise manner. Darwin is still actually quite readable. Um, I, I would I would recommend it if if uh, anyone out there hasn't. It's um, it, it's obvious why his version of these concepts uh, beyond the ideas that he introduces. It's it's understandable why it's uh, held up as as seminal. It's it's not only important. It's 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 uh, accessible, which I think is sometimes just as uh, important for. Uh, ideas to spread you know darwin's legacy at the end of his life is is an extremely good one he's well respected he's generally considered correct he's extremely famous what he's brought to the table is evidence and clarity and uh popularization of these ideas and none of that is bad i mean uh, the fact that he isn't the first and only uh shouldn't diminish from the work that he's put into this it's the fact that he's modernized it in a reasonable way and provided evidence for it that really stands out. It's not as though he got everything right. There's, I, I mean, the, the most glaring omission is failing to accurately describe the mechanism uh, for variation or transmission of uh, traits within a species. So, mm-hmm. okay, changes happen over time. Why? How? Um, he had some ideas. I don't know. They were weird Victorian, like he made up some sort of particle that emanates from all over the body and, and concentrates yeah. in the reproductive organs or something like that. It's Classic weird. Victorians. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, Always it's, invented particles. Yeah. 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 It's weird and wrong and we don't need to get into it. So his legacy is one of, of kind of uh, refining some of those ideas. In 1892, Java man is discovered. Java man is the first pre-modern human uh, fossil to be discovered. Or, or at least recognized as such. Uh, we'd wow. found a bunch of, you know, Neanderthal uh, skeletons, but mm-hmm. distinguishing a Neanderthal from a, a modern human is, I, I mean, every year goes by, it becomes less and less obvious what the difference is between the two, but we right, just yeah. didn't have the tools to recognize them as, as distinct. And, you know, the argument now is whether or not we should find them distinct. Java Man, though, was a Homo erectus. Like, it's, it's clearly a, a, a pre- human uh ancestor and that's going to cause some issues <laughs> uh you know the the detractors are going to say well that's just an extinct primate that's not actually a human ancestor and and anyone who recognizes uh darwin's theories is correct is going to go oh here's finally the evidence that uh we needed to to show that it's that it's true we don't have the tools to date any of this yet do we <laughs> no uh whew. when are we gonna have radiocarbon dating it's going to be a bit, but what we do have is the ability to uh, make good estimates based on geological evidence. So okay. basically, how far down it's buried. I mean, it's, it's Where we found. Yeah, yeah, much more complicated than that, obviously. But essentially, how far down yeah. is it? There's also Gregor Mendel, who is an Augustinian friar living in Germany, that in 1866 publishes a paper about a series of experiments he does on pea plants. This paper describes, for the first time ever, uh, the ideas of dominant and recessive traits and general rules of heredity. Gregor Mendel is the father of modern genetics. Mm -hmm. Now, 
his paper isn't necessarily connected to Darwin's when it's po- uh, published. In fact, it's it's really overlooked when it's published. It's not uh, considered impactful at all during his lifetime. And if anything, it's seen as impactful on breeding, on uh, cultivation, rather than on anything like evolution, right? Uh, And when it's kind of rediscovered by geneticists in like the very, very early 1900s, if anything, it re-sparks the debate over the correctness of Darwin's theories, because it's like, well, Gregor Mendel has just shown that you know, there's not really all these random things happening in, in nature to cause uh, variations. If you look at what Mendel does, it's essentially going to be um, like the, you know, again, the grade 10 biology. What are the, what are the squares called? The uh, squares. Yeah. The pundit squares where it's kind of like, well, you know, these ones, these ones are recessive and these ones are dominant. And if you have parents that are like this, then you're going to get offspring that are like this. It's really, really simple. Where's the randomness in that? And it's not really, until about 1930 when Ronald Fisher publishes the genetical theory of natural selection that the two ideas are reconciled where he basically goes, well, this shows how things vary. And then natural selection uh, describes how those variations succeed or fail. So this is the mechanism by which that Darwin missed. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. You know, uh, Fisher and and others who are working on this are, are coming at it from like a statistical model, basically. Which which helps them recognize the fact that this uh, heredity or hereditary um, uh, variation on, on a large enough scale uh, is going to cause drift within species or even differentiation mm-hmm. within species. By the 1950s, natural selection is essentially considered, uh, sorry, natural selection through genetic variation, I should say, is basically considered the only cor- correct theory uh, in any uh, respected scientific circles. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of end this, I guess, uh, in 1953 by the discovery of the structure and function of DNA uh, by James Watson and Francis Crick. We could get into the whole uh, Rosalind Franklin thing there. Uh, she took the photo, all that stuff. Uh, I, I've seen too many you know, conflicting things there to, to really weigh in too heavily, but um, she was also a contributing factor in, in finding uh, the structure of DNA. But basically we discovered, oh, this is the even though we've known about it since the 1860s. Oh, DNA is the mechanism through which cells transfer genetic information. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story. Like I've alluded a couple of times, there was a, there was a period in there where we thought DNA was like be all end all right. DNA is the, the, the roadmap by which the body is built. It's, uh, it tells us everything about you. And and we've learned since that that's not the case. There's uh, RNA factors. There's uh epigenetic factors, whether or not different genes are turned on or off, whether or not some of that stuff can be hereditary. Uh, it seems like some of it can. It's still a really messy, messy discipline. There's a lot we don't know. Right. Um, but the one thing that we have discovered is that uh, the theory of natural selection on a population level is a sufficient model to describe uh, the differentiation and evolution of various species, which is uh, kind of amazing that it's held up as well as it has, as long as it has. Yep. I want to talk about one other thing before we get going, because I don't want to really pretend like this isn't an aspect of evolution. Um, I, I want to talk about the Scopes trial in the United States. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> While we've talked about, you know, and then everybody got on board with Darwin and, and that was the end of it. I mean, you know, of course, I, I am breezing over a couple of people that have tried to like bring back Lamarckism in the 1920s and stuff like that. 
that's not necessarily the case in all circles. There is a very um, distinct character of religion in uh, the United States, especially. I, I mean, it shows up in Britain through the Methodists and things like that. There are there are Canadian do- denominations that sort of go this way, but like mainly the United States. It's through a movement or a series of movements called the Great Awakenings that we've talked about in a number of different topics where there were fundamental shifts in the way that Christianity is understood uh, in a number of denominations. You get much more charismatic uh, denominations, Pentecostals, uh, Baptists, as well as uh, much more fundamentalist uh, denominations. Fundamentalism is this idea that not only is the Bible the only religious text you need, as opposed to like sacred tradition and things like that that you would see in in uh, Catholicism, um, right. but it's also literally true, which is where the fundamentalist aspect comes into it. So, like Protestant denominations also have like sola scriptura, which was a, a main focus of the uh, uh, the Reformation in the 15th century or 16th century. Sorry, but in in most mainline Protestant uh, denominations, they won't tell you that every single word of the Bible is literally true. Um, there are aspects, and, and just like we talked about going back to St. Augustine, there are aspects that are kind of understood to be uh, metaphorical or allegorical, right? Right. Um, that's not the case with, with some of these denominations in the United States. They, 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 uh, understand, or they have a literal understanding of Genesis, the world's created in, in six days um, and created as it is. And this becomes uh, widespread enough to really have like a, uh, societal impact. I mean, when you look at something like the uh, progressive movement of the 1920s, so both like women's right to vote, but also uh, the temperance movement, right? Yep. Bo- both of those are coming from this fundamentalist understanding of scripture. There's a real opposition of modernism, especially as the industrial revolution causes faster and faster uh, development of you know the technological world world and sort of starts eating into domains that are considered uh traditionally theological it's like a luddite movement yes and no i mean it's it's more on the uh on a on a spiritual level than necessarily technological level which honestly in in some ways causes more friction than if you look at something like a uh you know the amish movement where it's kind of like well we're just going to like renounce anything modernist you have people who are trying to live in a modern world while having a fundamentalist understanding of cosmology. Right, okay. Which is a difficult thing to do. And mm-hmm. it really comes to a head after, basically after the First World War. Uh, in the early 20s, you see a lot of this stuff. This all sort of culminates, and, and I'm not going to pretend this is the only only place it happens, it's just this is by far the most famous and the one that gets talked about the most, so people should know about it. Uh, it culminates in the Butler Act uh, passed in 1925 in Tennessee, which prohibits the teaching of evolution in schools. Butler was a, uh, a legislator in the in the state Congress that basically said, like, I don't know what evolution is. All I know is that I'm hearing stories of kids coming home and saying that the the Bible is is nonsense and I can't have that. Right, so yeah. we're going to outlaw evolution. Now, keep in mind, the main opposition to the theory of evolution by these people at this time, for the majority of them, is not evolution in its totality. It's mm-hmm. specifically human evolution. Okay, yeah. Because it denies the divinity of the human condition. Now, there are people that will have issues with with all evolution as well. But in, in this period, that's kind of the, the dominant viewpoint. The governor basically passed this 
law with the understanding that this probably won't be enforced. This is basically like a, we'll make fe people feel a little better about this kind of thing. Yeah. Put a bandaid on it. Everyone will feel safer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it kind of blew up. It caught the, 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 the attention of some pretty prominent fundamentalist uh, leaders. The biggest one being someone named uh, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan had been, he had, he had had a long political career including being Secretary of State under uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, during the war, and w was extremely influential in U.S. politics at the time. He was also a very outspoken member of the fundamentalist movement. He was considered one of its leaders. And he he praised this uh, bill up and down, saying it was you know just the, the best thing that ever happened in the United States. Also, five years before, in 1920, uh, the ACLU had been founded. Ah, okay. Uh, the American Civil Liberties Union is a really, really interesting organization uh, to the point that it would almost be worth looking into as, as its own topic at some point because they have defended the weirdest, strangest things in court in the United States because really their only criteria on whether or not to defend something is whether or not civil, civil liberties are being violated or not. And mm -hmm. that is any constitutional rights, which means that they have defended some really abhorrent things on the on the you know basis of freedom of speech because right, technically yeah. based on the the constitution as it stands you're allowed to say some of those things uh -huh. which is a really interesting dynamic and and it basically means that people on you know of every persuasion kind of hates the aclu a little bit but they will put a lot of funding behind uh fighting a uh, a court case if they if they've decided to take it on they saw this Butler Act as violating a number of constitutional rights, um, mm -hmm. including freedom of speech and freedom of religion, uh, both First Amendment rights. So they went, well, maybe we should just be doing a, a test case here, challenge it in court, have it challenged on constitutional grounds and have it removed. There's this weird meeting in a little town in, uh, known as Dayton, Tennessee, and this is the, the most interesting part of the Scopes trial that I didn't know before this. I always took the Scopes trial to be a bunch of fundamentalists going after a school teacher for teaching evolution. Yep, that's my understanding of it. That's not what happened. Dayton, Tennessee was home to uh, the Cumberland Coal and Iron Company, owned by George Rapplia, who wanted to put Dayton on the map. He thought it was too small. Oh, good. <laughs> and he thought that one of the best ways to do that was to have something of national interest happen in Dayton, get some press drummed up. And he met with, you know, the mayor or sorry, no, the uh, the school uh, superintendent and mm -hmm. a, a local attorney. And they all sat down and talked about it. And one of the things that they came up with was challenging the Butler Act there in Dayton, Tennessee. Basically, the way that they put it was, listen, if he loses, like if, if they lose the case, if, if, the, if the act is repealed, then they're put on the map because that's where the act was repealed. And if right. it's won, then it's the first place that the act was successfully prosecuted. So they're on the map and they win. It's just free publicity. Yeah, any publicity is a good publicity. <laughs> that is the guiding factor in all of this. Um, okay. It's this weird little conspiracy about the owner of a coal and, and iron company. <laughs> I was going to say, it's absolutely a conspiracy. <laughs> so they decide that what they're going to do is 
they, they go to the local high school and they find uh, John T. Scopes, 24 years old, the math and science teacher there. And here's the really interesting thing about the Butler Act. Not a lot of research went into setting the whole thing up. The science textbooks that were being used in Tennessee at this point in time, and by extension, the curriculum that the teachers were required to teach, uh, contained a chapter on evolution. Okay. So, so there's not really an easy way around. <laughs> no, 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 no. You were going to teach evolution if you were a science teacher. <laughs> so they went to speak to Scopes, who, you know, believed in evolution and disliked the law and basically went, hey, do you mind being the test case for this? And he said, well, here's the problem. I can't actually remember if I've taught evolution yet or not. <laughs> He's like, I think we covered it somewhat, but I don't remember if we've gone through the whole chapter. Um, because remember, the specific issue is is evolution of human beings. Yes. But they went, well, are you okay with just saying that you have for the purposes of this trial? And he went, <laughs> okay. And he actually went as far as to coach some of his students in what to say when being investigated, like when he was being investigated, because he knew he was they were going to go to some of his students and ask what he taught. And so he told them what to say. They're like, yes, he said all of this stuff. It's super underhanded. It's weird. It's it's very, very corrupt. So anyways, uh, he was charged. And the, the, the case, mainly through the connection with uh, William Jennings Bryan, caught national attention very, very quickly. Mainly through that connection, but also because the conspirators were like kind of marketing the whole thing. They're kind yeah. of drumming up publicity. This trial went from like okay this is being done in like the town courthouse to like william jennings bryan himself offered to be part of the prosecution against scopes mm -hmm. which is wild to me like this is a former secretary of state just like rolling in and being like yep i'm gonna take care of this i i, I saw the movie at one point with uh jack lemon and i believe walter Matthau. oh inherit the wind yeah yeah, and uh, it, it was very much uh, positioned as the, here's like this minor infraction about this law that no one's really heard of, and it's going to get blown away out of proportion by all these big time guys coming to tiny town USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Inherit the Wind isn't like particularly accurate, but like in broad strokes, I mean, uh, it's not the worst portrayal, I suppose. It's it's just more thematic than it is accurate, if you know oh, what sure, I mean. Sure. Yeah, so... so uh, the ACLU decides to get somebody more prominent involved in the defense. But like, you have to understand that like, this is already at a point where it's not being taken very seriously by anybody. It is very much like how much publicity can we get around this? Because there's this, this, this perception that on the defense's side that, well, we've just admitted that he broke the law. So our defense has to be that the law is unethical or unconstitutional. And, the only way that that kind of ruling really works is by getting popular support for it. That's generally right. how that works. So they went as far as to like write HG Wells to see if he would be on the defense <laughs> team. That's fun. He politely declined. He noted that he is not uh, trained as a lawyer in Britain, let alone in Tennessee. All right. <laughs> uh, but they did end up getting a, a superstar uh, defense lawyer, as you know, from the movie, Clarence Darrow, who, has this long, long legal career outside of this. He's, this is one of the things he's best known for, but like he was uh, like a union lawyer for a very long time. There was a bunch of other landmark cases. There was a big murder that he covered and he's very much like 
he's not the source of this uh stereotype but you know in every show you've ever seen who's just like nah, i'm just a simple country lawyer but he's I'm a simple southern lawyer <laughs> yeah yeah i mean he's from illinois so he's not but like he, he kind of has a little bit of that going on like that a little bit yeah but he could also be very very vicious when he saw the right moment to strike so he takes lead on the defense team and the whole thing just blows up from there in terms of like you know there's heavy international media involvement there are like the 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 front lawn of the courthouse is like covered in reporters but also like people just coming out to see what was going on there were people on the lawn with like trained chimps performing like there's just like (laughs) it's it's a circus it's an absolute circus this is the first trial in u.s history to be broadcast by radio which is like clearly a collaboration for more uh publicity right but it's all yeah but it's all in this backdrop of like well is evolution real or not and like they go into it and the and and the judge is like keep in mind we're not legislating whether or not evolution is real here we're trying to figure out whether this man broke a law and everyone's like oh yeah no definitely anyways (laughs) anyways prove the bible's real and it's like oh no like the whole thing turns into this like back and forth on creationism versus evolution really really vicious it seems like the judge is very much on the prosecution side he threw out six days worth of defense witnesses who are mainly called based on whether or not they could uh, prove evolution over uh, the bible which is not necessarily it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not scopes broke the law but again they're aiming for like a constitutional challenge right yeah exactly so in a really interesting move on the seventh day Darrow basically goes, okay, well, you, you won't accept any of my expert witnesses on the Bible, so I'm going to call uh, William Jennings Bryan on it. He's going to be my expert witness. Mm-hmm. So you get summoned on something like that, you have to answer the questions. Yep. And now you're in a spot where you either need to allow him to testify because he's been called as a, 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 an expert witness, mm-hmm. or you can throw out his testimony, but... By doing so, you are in a court of law denying that he's enough of a witness or enough of an expert to testify on these matters when he is a leading figure in the fundamentalist movement in the United States. Okay. (laughs) It's like getting Jerry Falwell up there and being like, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, what a move. Yep. Anyways, that cross-examination basically turns into two hours of, like, extremely vicious questions that Darrow's had uh, prepared, talking to, like, all sorts of experts on both theology and biology, Uh and it's perceived as a bit of a bloodbath. Like, it doesn't go well for Brian. (laughs) The judge basically ends up throwing out the, that testimony as well on, more, more on conduct than on expertise yeah because it's a it's a vicious argument for hours (laughs) yeah on on like the nature of creation um which has very again very little to do with whether or not scopes taught evolution Mm -hmm. but yeah darrow came out looking clearly stronger despite that scopes is found guilty because he did break that law um he's fined a hundred dollars which is covered by oh it's the owner of a paper i want to say one in baltimore or something like that because okay. it's all publicity anyways right he's made yeah, them how many sure. 
how much money through publicity. The ruling is eventually reversed by the Tennessee Supreme Court, but not on constitutional grounds, which is really interesting. The ACLU huh. brings several constitutional objections, and the Supreme Court finds no issues with any of them. I would personally disagree with the rulings on a lot of them, uh, yeah. but you know, um, it's yeah, it, it is what it is. That being said, it's overturned on a technicality because uh, the judge, it has something to do with the judge setting the amount of the fine before the jury has a chance to weigh in on it. I don't know. It's some, it's some procedural thing. I, I don't know. I, I don't remember it because it's boring and it doesn't matter. Um, it's irrelevant. Know, it's one of those. Interestingly enough, Brian dies five days after the trial in his sleep. Oof. There's still arguments over whether or not it's linked to the trial in any way, shape, or form. People like to put a lot of significance on this trial. It's sort of, it's it's one of those causation versus correlation issues where, yeah. you know, uh, by 1927, just two years later, uh, 13 states in total have pro, uh, prohibited the teaching of evolution. Okay, yeah. well, is that because they got away with prosecuting somebody or is that just how... Uh, society in general have been trending because we already know that because uh, of the original uh, Butler Act. Yeah, and here comes a huge national spotlight on it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you got people calling their their Congress people and saying, "I want that law or whatever." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or were they already call, uh, calling them about it, and it's just taking them a little bit longer to get it on the books? True. Yeah. Um, you know, evolution is removed from a lot of textbooks after this, but again what is that reacting to specifically? Is it the the successful prosecution or is it, you know, the, the leaders who are in power uh, setting curriculum uh, have been voted in by people who also agree with that line of thinking? You know, it's, right. it's, it's one of those that gets really muddy. Uh, the truth of it is that to, to this day, Dayton has a booming tourist trade seeing the courtroom that's still set up as it was in 1927 or 1925, yeah. sorry. Get your picture taken. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. That being said, in a general manner, it's it's seen it's seen as a bit of a victory um, for evolution over creationism for a while because like while that stuff gets taken out of textbooks, opposition to evolution goes way down and it, it becomes uh, more widely spread in general in the United States up until the 1960s, basically, um, when fundamentalists tend to pivot to creation science. Uh, okay. if you're, if you're familiar with that, it's basically a, an attempt to legitimize through scientifically seeming, uh, methods, things that are, are very faith-based. I've seen some of this. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, evolution is a thing, but God created the spark of life that started the whole thing off or. Well, yeah. And it depends on, on, on your stance on a number of various issues. So, you know, young earth versus old earth creationists where, you know, you'll have young earth creationists who say, yeah, the, the world is only 6,000 years old. And if you look at this spot in uh, some sediment, there's this fossil down here. And it's like, well, we know that's from a mudslide, but okay. Yeah. Um, it, you know, stuff like that. It, it, it gets, you know, it, you, you can easily get into the weeds on that one, but that's the general direction that evolutionary uh, evolution denial uh, takes uh, after the sixties. But realistically the, that sort of like victory, you know, the, the sort of perceived moral victory of, of uh, evolutionary science. I'm not sure how much that has to do with, you know, the perception of fundamentalists at the trial and how much of it has to do with the fact that one of the biggest leaders of fundamentalism in the United States uh, died five days after the trial. I mean, that's a, that's, those are big shoes to fill and they're not adequately filled for a long time. So anyways, that's really all I have to say on uh, the Scopes trial necessarily. It is to point out though, that there, there is something a little bit different about 
the acceptance of uh, evolution in the United States compared to some other people. It's it's inextricably linked to the education system at this point in time. Some of these uh, some of these states allowed evolutionary teaching, but only side by side with creation uh, science for for a long time. Um, a big factor in bringing it back into the curriculum, honestly, is is Sputnik. Uh, in 1957, this fear that uh, the United States is behind the Soviet Union on scientific thinking and that we need to train future engineers, you know. But, you know, it, it, you also really can't talk about evolution uh, and, and history of evolutionary understanding without mentioning that it, it is a really, it's a, it's a real force in the United States that needs to be contended with a little bit. So anyways, that's evolution. It's a weird note to end on, I suppose. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an idea that's had a very, very long history, one that was much longer than I realized before starting this, and uh, yeah, yeah. something that we continue to refine to this day. But uh, those are those are some of the most important points. Uh, so, what did you think? What were your impressions? What was the most surprising thing for you? Uh, what was the most surprising thing for me? Uh, I, I suppose that it was, you know, that it what you just said that it did go back that far and had that many uh, sort of ancient thinkers on the topic i i don't know why that surprised me it seems kind of obvious in retrospect that like especially when it comes to like you know aristotle and plato like you know people who thought about humanity's place in in the cosmos constantly that they they should be thinking about the taxonomy of any sort of organism like plants animals and so on like yeah for sure I would say that's the biggest thing. The other thing is that uh, it seems to tie into a lot of other topics that you and I have talked about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sort of removal of humanity as the center of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As we have these topics that you and I discuss where we go from, you know, 3000 bc to current day and still don't have an end to the topic yet every time i come up with one where i'm like ah we can start this like late yeah your topics always end up like beginnings of writing it's (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird phenomenon but i like my guest spots on hi 101 to be like a game of civilization Mm -hmm. (laughs) more turns than you think you're gonna take starting at the dawn of civilization (laughs) every single time (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciated having you on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be back. Evolution is a much older concept than its popular conception suggests, with roots stretching back thousands of years. What becomes unique about evolution in the 19th and 20th centuries is not the idea, but rather the secularization and explanation of the mechanisms behind it, which would lead to both incredible advancements and significant friction. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I had no idea when radiocarbon dating was developed. Uh, It was developed in 1946 by Willard Libby, who would win a Nobel Prize for his work. However, it wouldn't have been helpful in dating Java Man, as I suggested, because it's really only useful back about 50,000 years or so. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. 
I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.